Hi, I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for the month of April 2014. Let's kick off with Selective Digestive Decontamination, SDD, a topic that divides the community. So the first article about this, or at least related to this area, was published by the Sudoku Collaboration in the BMJ. This article, Selective Digestive or Oropharyngeal Decontamination and Topical Oropharyngeal Chlorhexidine for Prevention of Death in General Intensive Care, was a systematic review and network meta-analysis. So Sudoku is coming, and Sudoku is the collaboration of investigators around the world who want to translate this area into a larger RCT and then perhaps practice. So let's start with some general definitions. So SDD is oropharyngeal and gastric application of non-absorbable antibiotics and that's often polymyxin, tobramycin and amphotericin and a short course of IV antibiotic, often kefetaxime. SOD, or selective oropharyngeal decontamination, is the oropharyngeal application only, so no gastric and no IV. And then topical oropharyngeal antiseptic is chlorhexidine applied as a gel or a liquid orally up to four times a day. So this systematic review and meta-analysis takes a closer look at the RCTs into this area, and they identified 29 eligible studies In these studies, the meta-analysis revealed that SDD had a pooled odds ratio of mortality of 0.73 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.64 to 0.84. SOD had pooled odds ratio mortality of 0.85 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.74 to 0.97. And oral chlorhex had a pooled odds ratio mortality of 1.25 with the confidence intervals 1.05 to 1.5. So they conclude that SDD and SOD are superior to oral chlorhexidine in preventing death in adult ICUs and somewhat surprisingly oral chlorhexidine is associated with an increased risk of death. Now they point out that there are a lot of limitations and further prospective RCTs are needed once the barriers to implementation are explored. And that's the important part. So this group, Sudiku, do have an interest in a large multi-centre RCT, but have recognised that for some reason uh, the barriers to SDD have to be overcome first, and they are fear of antibiotic resistance and the sense that it's difficult or messy to administer. So the second article that touches on this area uh, in JAMA Internal Medicine is reappraisal of routine oral care with chlorhexidine gluconate for patients receiving mechanical ventilation, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this meta-analysis identified 16 studies that evaluated daily oral care with chlorhexidine versus inert comparators in adult mechanically ventilated patients and provided data on one or more outcomes of pneumonia, mortality, duration of mechanical ventilation, intensive care length of stay, hospital length of stay, and antibiotic dispensing. 
Now they report that cardiac surgery studies were very different to the other studies, reporting on outcomes such as nosocomial pneumonia, upper respiratory tract infections, lower respiratory tract infections, or total respiratory tract infections, whereas the pulmonary outcome in all the non-cardiac surgery studies was specified as VAP, or ventilator-associated pneumonia. There were significantly fewer nosocomial pneumonias in cardiac surgery patients receiving chlorhexidine, risk ratio of 0.56. There was a non-significant finding of fewer VAP cases in non-cardiac surgery studies, so relative risk of 0.78, but across the midline with 95% confidence intervals. There was no association between chlorhexidine and mortality in cardiac surgery patients. There was a non-significant finding of increased mortality in non-cardiac surgery patients randomized to chlorhexidine with a relative risk of 1.13 and confidence intervals of 0.99 to 1.29 and chlorhexidine was not associated with differences in ICU or hospital length of stay or mechanical ventilation duration. So in summary, routine or oral chlorhexidine may reduce lower respiratory tract infections in cardiac surgery patients, but it doesn't reduce VAP, length of stay or survival. So these two studies together appear to be raising questions about this area of oral and digestive hygiene and and antibiotic and microbial control. Next we have a paediatric study from Brisbane. This is high flow nasal cannula support in inter-hospital transport of critically ill children in intensive care medicine. So this paediatric retrieval study from Brisbane reports on the outcomes of a change in practice from early intubation of infants for retrieval to use of high flow nasal cannula during retrieval. 793 infants retrieved over six years were compared in a before cohort of which there were 331 and an after cohort of which there were 462. Now in the before cohort 7% were retrieved on non-invasive ventilation and 49% invasive ventilation. In the after cohort that changed with 33% receiving high flow nasal cannula, 2% non-invasive and that was 7% and 35% invasive down from 49% and this is a decrease in invasive ventilation of 16%. So overall this study shows that a specialized pediatric retrieval team were able to safely transport infants on high-fly nasal cannula and reduce the need for intubation and invasive ventilation. So that's a lesson for pediatric retrieval teams. Okay, moving on to the New England Journal of Medicine, we have fibrinolysis for patients with intermediate risk pulmonary embolies. The decision about whether or not to thrombolyze the intermediate risk PE remains difficult. In the past 40 years, there have been fewer than 1,000 patients enrolled in RCTs of heparin versus lysis for PE. This multi-centre prospective RCT tries to answer the question for us. So what did they do? The patients, there were 1,006 patients with acute PE, onset of less than 15 days, who were intermediate risk. And this was RV dysfunction on echo or CT, positive troponin, without hemodynamic instability. That is, they were normotensive. The treatments were Tenect plays 30 to 50 milligrams single dose, plus unfractionated heparin versus unfractionated heparin. The groups were well matched at baseline. 
95% of the diagnosis was confirmed by CT and RV dysfunction was confirmed by echo alone in 55%, CT alone in 15% or both 30%. So that is, echo was used in 85% of cases. 30% of cases received low molecular weight heparin prior to randomization. Now the primary outcome was a clinical composite of death from any cause or hemodynamic decompensation or collapse within seven days after randomization. And this was 2.6% in the lysis group versus 5.6% in the standard group. Odds ratio of 0.44, confidence intervals 0.23 to 0.87. There was no difference in seven-day mortality with the difference in that composite primary outcome due entirely to the effect on hemodynamic decompensation, which uh, was 1.6% in the lysis group and 5% in the standard group. Secondary outcomes, not surprisingly, given the primary outcome, there were more vasopressors and inotropes given in the placebo group. Um, the placebo group received more mechanical ventilation and more open label lysis. There was a significant difference in bleeding, with major bleeding more likely in the lysis group, 11.5 versus 2.4%, and an increase in hemorrhagic stroke with lysis, 2% versus 0.2%. There was no difference in all-cause mortality at day 30, 2.4% for lysis and 3.2% for standard, and stratification by age and gender revealed better outcomes with lysis in under 75-year-olds, with an odds ratio of the primary outcome of 0.33, compared to over 75-year-olds it was 0.63. So in conclusion, the addition of lysis to heparin in intermediate risk PE resulted in no difference in survival an improved hemodynamic state in the first seven days, but an increased risk of bleeding. And subgroup analysis showed the benefit was restricted to the under 75-year-old population. And this is certainly equivocal evidence, as the benefit of improved hemodynamic status could only outweigh the risk of major bleeding if it led to improved long-term survival or function, that is, a chronic pulmonary hypertension or RV dysfunction. Unfortunately, we aren't presented with this data so we're left still uncertain about the real benefits of lysis and intermediate PE. For the anaesthetists out there, we had the two POISE-2 investigator trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at aspirin and clonidine in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. So the POISE-2 trial was a multi-center prospective 2 by 2 factorial trial randomizing 10,010 patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery and at risk of vascular complications to aspirin versus placebo and clonidine versus placebo. The first paper reports the aspirin result. The patients received 200 milligrams prior to surgery, then 100 milligrams per day for 30 days. This is the initiation stratum, or for seven days, the continuation stratum. They report similar baseline characteristics, uh, mean age of 68.6 years, 32-ish percent had vascular disease, about 4% had prior coronary stenting. At least 80% in each group took at least 80% of the study drug. There was no difference in the primary outcome, which is composite death or non-fatal MI, which was 7% in aspirin and 7.1% placebo. There was more major bleeding with aspirin, 4.6 versus 3.8%. Hazard ratio of 1.23, 95% confidence intervals of 1.01 to 1.49, so just significant. And there was no difference in secondary outcomes. 
An a priori stratification into current or new aspirin use revealed aspirin significantly increased the risk of bleeding and decreased the risk of stroke in the initiation stratum. In addition, aspirin increased the risk of acute kidney injury requiring dialysis in the continuation stratum. There were no difference in infarct or death in these two groups. So in summary, perioperative aspirin does not improve outcomes, results in more bleeding in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery who are considered to be at risk of vascular complications. Now the second bit was the clonidine arm, um, and that was 0.2 milligrams of oral clonidine prior to surgery, then a transdermal patch for three days. Again, similar baseline characteristics, obviously. And at least 90% of patients had the study patch on for at least 80% of the time. There was no difference in the primary outcome. Again, this was composite death or non-fatal MI. There was more non-fatal cardiac arrest with clonidine, 0.3 versus 0.1%. More hypotension with clonidine, 47.6 versus 37.1%. And more bradycardia with clonidine, 12 versus 8%. And post-hoc analysis suggested that hypotension was a risk factor for AMI. So in summary, perioperative clonidine did not improve outcomes and results in more hypertension, bradycardia and non-fatal cardiac arrest in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery who are considered to be at risk of vascular complications, hardly a ringing endorsement for prophylactic clonidine. Moving on to JAMA and red blood cell transfusions, we have healthcare associated infection after red blood cell transfusion, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this systematic review looks at RCTs that incorporate liberal versus restrictive red blood cell transfusion design and evaluate the effect on healthcare associated infection. They identified 18 trials, of which two were critical care, Hebert and Lacroix, and found that the restrictive threshold ranged from 6.4 to 9.7 grams per deciliter. The liberal threshold ranged from 9 to 11.3 grams per deciliter. The baseline hemoglobins were comparable. The restrictive groups received fewer transfusions. There was variable adherence to protocols across trials. Fever or infection was present in 1.7% of restrictive group and 2.3% of liberal. Serious infection uh, had a pooled risk ratio of 0.82 uh, and that was significant. And there was an absolute risk of serious infection of 11.8% versus 16.9%. The number needed to treat with restrictive tr strategy to prevent all serious infections was 38. And the number of avoided infections was 26.5 per 1,000 patients with a restrictive strategy. The confidence intervals were 8.2 to 42.5. The pooled risk ratio for serious infection continued to favour restrictive strategy when limited to those with less than 5% dropout, concealed randomization, and leukocyte depletion. And finally, stratification by clinical setting revealed no difference in risk of serious infection, with the exception of reduction in the joint replacement and sepsis groups. In critical care, the risk ratio was 0.83 for um, the difference in serious infection, and that had 95% confidence intervals of 0.64 to 1.04. So overall, a restrictive strategy was associated with a lower risk of serious infection with a number needed to treat of 38, reduced to 20 if the haemoglobin threshold of 7 was used. 
The effects across subgroups are not as clear, and it would seem we should either initiate restrictive strategy across the board in institutions or in areas where equipoise remains perform further large RCTs with careful ascertainment of infectious outcomes as part of the design. Okay, moving on to critical care medicine, we've got a number of studies. First is the physical complications in acute lung injury survivors, a two-year longitudinal prospective study. So this prospective multi-centre observational trial follows up to 222 survivors of acute lung injury for two years, and they report that objective measures revealed muscle weakness at one year in over a third of survivors. There was an associated substantial impairment in physical function, health-related quality of life at two years. Multivariate analysis revealed that duration of bed rest was the single risk factor most consistently associated with muscle weakness throughout longitudinal follow-up. Other variables associated with weakness at hospital discharge included older age and proportion of ICU days alert, although these were no longer significant by three months. The cumulative steroid dose and the use of neuromuscular blocking agents were not associated with muscle weakness. And they suggested future evaluations of post-ICU muscle strength may be simplified as the authors compared three different objective measures of muscle strength, hand strength dynamometry, manual muscle testing and maximal inspiratory pressure, and all were highly correlated. Now it may be simpler and more cost effective and efficient to use hand grip than the others because they require training and quality assurance and to ensure higher interrelator reliability. The second study in critical care medicine is troponin in elevation in severe sepsis and septic shock, the role of left ventricular diastolic dysfunction and right ventricular dilatation. So if you've ever questioned the meaning of elevated troponin in septic shock, then this is a paper worth looking at. It's fairly technical in its discussion around echo because they performed 225 advanced echocardiograph studies that included global strain, strain rate imaging, 3D and left and right ventricular volume analysis in addition to standard echo. But they performed these studies in 106 patients. Um, and what they concluded was that LV diastolic dysfunction and RV dilatation are the echo features that best correlate with troponin and are associated with mortality. Now the mechanisms behind this are probably multifactorial, but I guess it raises the question, could any therapeutic interventions improve RV and LV function and prevent long-term mortality in sepsis? The next study in critical care medicine is seeking to reduce non-beneficial treatment in the ICU, an exploratory trial of proactive ethics intervention uh, by Schneiderman's group. So ethics consultations have become an area of increasing interest in the hope that they will help address ethical challenges in acute hospitals and reduce unnecessary and expensive interventions. Previous experience suggests that ethics consultations, that is an intervention after an ethical issue is identified, can lead to improved family and health professional satisfaction, reduced ICU length of stay, and reduced use of aggressive interventions in ICU patients that don't survive. In contrast, the use of proactive ethics interventions, that is before a problem arises, has been less successful. This prospective randomised study describes the effect of a proactive ethics intervention 
versus placebo in 470 ICU patients with a length of stay greater than five days. In the intervention, a clinical ethicist visited the family and patient, determined capacity, values, treatment preferences, judged if there were potential ethical issues, and where present, discussed, addressed, and followed up. They found no difference in mortality, no difference in hospital and ICU length of stay, ventilation duration, nutrition support, or cost in non-survivors from both groups, and found that most patients didn't actually have an ethical issue that was identified. So what does this mean? Well, it could mean that proactive ethics interventions in ICUs just aren't effective. Secondly, it could mean that they are effective, but it may be if they're delivered at a different time, in a different cohort, or delivered in a different manner. And finally, this is a group with a strong history and ethics research, so maybe the ICU has been contaminated, so to speak, or has become more expert, and by day five, which is when the intervention occurred, the family's issues had already been addressed. Again, in critical care medicine, we have a multi-biomarker-based outcome risk stratification model for adult septic shock. So this sub-study of the VAST trial has derived, tested, calibrated, and validated a risk stratification tool for adult septic shock that estimates the risk of 28-day mortality. So included in the model are a panel of biomarkers which, like me, you may not have heard of, CCL3, HSPA1B, interleukin-8, which we have, GZMB, and CCL4. And these were measured during the initial presentation to the ICU of patients with septic shock, and also admission lactate, age, and chronic disease status. The high-risk terminal of the algorithm identified a cohort with a mortality rate of 56%, while the low-risk terminal of this algorithm the mortality rate was 11%. So to what use could this be put? Well, the authors suggest that the primary role could be to identify a high-risk group for inclusion in clinical trials of sepsis agents. Now, there's been a lot of criticism uh, in the past few years about our sepsis trials and the negative outcomes. So perhaps it is something like this, where there is an early algorithm that identifies a high-risk group that could improve the performance of sepsis trials and in an ideal world, lead to outcomes. I guess, in a more blue-sky manner, it is conceivable that a panel of biomarkers may eventually guide therapies that were tested using them to begin with. In intensive care medicine, there is an eSICM expert panel report called Neurological Examination of Critically Ill Patients, a Pragmatic Approach. Now, this area, neurological exam, is, an, is a skill discussed at length by those doing or teaching exams. And if that applies to you, this is worth the read. It talks about the essential components of the clinical neurological assessment in the ICU, which critically all patients should be examined neurologically, all, how should sedation be managed to facilitate neurological assessment, and they talk about daily interruption or reduction of sedation um, unless there is a contraindication how coma should be assessed in critically ill patients. And they talk about graded stimulus, brainstem evaluation, motor response, respiratory pattern, and the tools that should be used. It then talks about delirium assessment in critically ill patients. That delirium is a pathological alteration in cerebral function with inattention, fluctuating course, and an underlying illness. They recommend that critical patients who are not comatose should be screened routinely, that 
validated tools should be used such as the CAMIC or the ICDSC and that it should be repeated at scheduled intervals to increase diagnostic sensitivity. They then go on to talk about what are the clinical criteria which should prompt MRI imaging in patients who are admitted without a primary neurological diagnosis uh, and recommend that brain MRI is used in the following conditions. Patients developing acute neurological deficits or an acute change in mental status not explained by CT, refractory status epilepticus, suspicion of cerebral fat embolism, osmotic myelinolysis or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, patients not recovering after hypoxic ischemic injury or prolonged hypoglycemia, and in patients with sepsis associated with altered mental status, focal neurological signs, and or abnormal brainstem reflexes. So that's interesting. They talk about how should patients be evaluated for ICU-acquired muscle weakness and suggest that uh, hand grip dynamometry or MRC be used um, and that plausible etiology should be explored. Uh, they recommend that nerve conduction studies and electromography be used whenever a differential diagnosis between ICU-acquired weakness and other causes of neuromuscular weakness cannot be achieved based on history and clinical features. And finally, they talk about the prognostic value of neurological signs and recommend that um, neurological exam is recommended to assess prognosis following TBI and cardiac arrest and that neurological exam of comatose patients after cardiac arrest should include pupillary reflex, corneal reflex and motor responses. This is a big document and there's a lot of recommendations but it really is worth looking at if you're about to do an exam or want to brush up on your neuro neurological skills. And finally we have another enteral nutrition review commentary type paper. So if you remember there was one recently in intensive care medicine and this time critical care medicine with Paul Marrick as the author has written a opinion piece called Myths and Misconceptions. So what did he come up with? Firstly, initiate EN within 48 hours in critically ill patients who cannot feed themselves. Trophic feeding may be okay, but evidence is restricted to well-nourished patients. The concept of bowel rest is seriously flawed, as is the idea that starvation is good for you. EN is better than PN. PN should be instituted if EN cannot be started for greater than seven days or earlier if there is evidence of protein, calorie, malnutrition. There is as yet no clear role for early or supplemental PN. EN can be given to patients on vasopressors. The vasopressors and EN equals bowel ischemia idea is a myth. EN should not be delayed because of mechanical ventilation. Post-pyloric feeding does not reduce aspiration and pneumonia. Bowel sounds have not been shown to be related to success of enteral feeding. They contributed to by swallowing air and myoelectric studies suggest that bowel sounds and motility are not related. Enteral feeding is okay after GIT anastomoses and does not lead to breakdown. Again, motility studies show that there is a return of small bowel function within hours. In addition, the gastrointestinal tract produces 6 litres of fluid per day and an extra litre of feed is unlikely to put that much pressure or more pressure on an anastomosis. There is evidence that EN promotes wound healing. 
and a more careful approach can be taken in abdominal trauma burns or proven ileus and obstruction. Enteral feeding can be delivered to patients with an open abdomen. Gastric residual volumes are a bad guide to feeding, as greater than 400 mils does not predict aspiration. EN should be given in pancreatitis, started early, and considered small bowel feeding if it's severe. And finally, 10 to 30 degrees head up is good enough. You don't need to be 45 degrees head up to be fed. Well, that's all for Journal Club Critique for April 2014. Go to the website if you want to learn more or look at the papers directly. Otherwise, I'll see you again next month. Thank you.